This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. For the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. You bet your ass, baby. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow now, is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast with host A. Trunk. Hey everybody, it's Eddie Trunk and welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Interviews with the biggest names in rock music each and every Thursday. Wherever you get your podcast, be sure to subscribe so you do not miss an episode. And as I tell you guys every week, everything you hear on this podcast, all the interviews originated on my Sirius XM radio show, Trunk Nation, which you can hear live Monday through Friday on Faction Talk, Sirius XM channel 103, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, noon to 2 Pacific. If you are in the U.S. and Canada and you are only listening to this podcast You are missing a ton of other interviews and interactive content, commentary, rock news. Join me every day for Trunk Nation, Faction Talk 103, or on the SiriusXM app. You can listen to it there anytime, audio, video, and more. Come on board with me at SiriusXM for The Daily Show. Giving you a little taste here on the podcast each week. And this week we have a special that I did, uh, guess, about a month the month and a half ago it already aired a couple times on the radio show it's a guy that i've been trying to get for the longest time it is mike varney anybody that knows anything about guitar players and the whole shred guitar movement that started with Ingve malmstein back in the very early 80s mike varney is the guy behind all of it mike varney is the guy that started the first ever label in the u.s dedicated to metal shrapnel records he's got so many stories Mike lives in Las Vegas. He's still active in the music scene and he's still working with a bunch of great artists as well. And uh, we've been trying to connect. We've, we've known each other for a long time. We've been trying to connect for the longest time, but his schedule and my schedule just weren't working. So we finally found a way to get it done. And Mike was having a problem with his phone on the day we did this interview. So he ended up going out into his car 
and did the interview from sitting in his car in Vegas, the entire almost hour and a half conversation. So he really went above and beyond to, to make this happen. And I appreciate that. And the audio is fine. It just was funny what we had to do to get this all uh, sorted out and finally make it happen. But so many great stories about his incredible history in the music industry. And I appreciate him, like I said, taking the time to do it. I love doing these producer spotlights. Gives you some insights of stuff that goes on behind the scenes in the world of music and in making all of these records that we know and love. And Mike shared a lot with us. Reminder, be sure to follow me on social media at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook page for info and updates. And speaking of Vegas, well, first of all, if you are in Key West, I am at Rock Island the next couple days hosting that great event right through Sunday. So if you're listening to this and you're in Key West, hopefully I'll see you at Rock Island. And then next week, a couple great events I want to remind you about, uh, starting with an added one on Monday of next week, I will be at Vamped in Vegas hosting a show with the Music Mob, which is fronted by Slaughter and Vince Neil guitarist Jeff Blando. Special guests on that show include Jesse James Dupree, Danny Coker, Stephen Piercy. It's going to be a great time. George Lynch is going to get up and jam. If you happen to be in Vegas uh, this coming Wednesday, Join us at Vamped. It'll be a great time, and there's going to be a lot of people hanging out, jamming, and I'll be hosting that with a band called Music Mob. It's covers, but it's a lot of fun. And then, of course, the artists from their respective bands are going to get up and do some of the big hits, like Piercy will do some Rat, etc. And then also, a week from today, if you're listening to this on post day next Thursday, I'll be hosting the annual Heavy Metal Hall of Fame show, the Metal Hall of Fame. I've hosted every one. This year it's happening uh, a week from today, next Thursday, and a new location, Agora Hills, California, at the Canyon Club. And I'm sure you've seen the big news making the rounds on social media. Twisted Sister not only being inducted, but performing for the first time since their retirement. And I'll be there to cover all of that for you, and I'll see you there if you're attending that again in Agora Hills a week from today, this coming Thursday, at the Canyon Club. All the other stuff going on, and there's a ton, it's all on eddytrunk.com, and it is uh, also on social media again, at eddytrunk, so be sure to follow. And again, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode each and every Thursday on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Let's get to Mike Varney. That's our interview this week, and as you can probably hear, I'm at a music festival now. They just started sound checking, so let's, let's get you Mike Varney for the Eddie Trunk podcast this week. Mike, thanks for some time. This is overdue. I'm glad we had a chance to do it. Hi, Eddie. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm, I'm uh, yeah, I'm glad it's finally happening. It's taken quite a while, but thank you for uh, bearing with me and vice versa, and here we are, live. Yeah, right on. yeah, yeah, for sure. So I guess the best place to start is at the very beginning, Mike. I mean, I know that uh, so many of these guitar players came on your radar through writing a column, but what what came first, the column or the label? Take take me through the earliest history. Well, I, I had been a musician, and I'll skip all of that, but I, I did play with a lot of cool people and some people that became well-known later. Uh, and then uh, as a record collector... Well, hold on, hold on, hold was, on, hold on. Let me stop you there. Don't gloss over that. <laughs> tell me, tell the audience about your career as a musician. All right, well, I'm, I don't want to get too deep into it because it'll take a long time. But basically, uh, I grew up as a heavy metal, you know, guitar player, and uh, Michael Schenker, Gary Moore, 
even Alan Holdsworth, if he didn't get to our player, those were like my favorites. I had all their records when I was growing up. And I got every record I could find, anything that was heavy. That was the thing from the time I was, you know, probably seventh grade, heavy, 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 you know. And so um, I was trying to trying to get, you know, different, different hard rock, heavy metal bands together. But I had a chance to join a punk band called The Nuns, and they were playing all these cool gigs. So we ended up playing with television and, and eight shows that, uh, the whiskey with the dictators and then with the dictators in the Ramones at Winterland and with Brian Ferry at Winterland and, you know, various things like that. I did that for quite a while. Then I, I quit and joined the band. And then about a, after we broke up about a year later, Huey Lewis joined up with three of those guys and became the news. And then around that time I started playing with, before that I started playing with John Cipollina from Quicksilver Messenger Service. And we had a, a band with a singer called Rocky Sullivan and, and a record came out on a, uh, on a German label. Uh, and, uh, then, um, I think that, oh, then we started, I started working with Marty Ballon from Jefferson airplane, Jefferson starship. He saw me playing with John Cipollina in that band at the old Waldorf, which is a Bill Graham venue. And he wanted to, uh, get me in the studio to uh, do some session guitar playing. So I started that. And then I said, man, I think I could write some better songs, uh, with, uh, with your lyrics. He said, well, try it, you know, give it a shot. So I did. And he liked it. So we started recording those and, I brought Jeff Pilsen into it, and uh, I had Leonard uh, Hayes and Phil Kenmore from Y&T uh, playing in it. And we played Bill Graham's Old Waldorf and, and some other venues, and we got in Rolling Stone and, uh, gosh, all kinds of other, all kinds of New York Times, L.A. Times, uh, all kinds of other other press. And then EMI came and bought it, and it was a hour and a half long video. Jesse Bradman was the front person, and and uh, Jesse was uh, was in, with Alda Nova and and in poison at one point with Richie Cotson. Uh, anyway, uh, we, uh, had this thing and we made this record and Jeff sang and, uh, it didn't do very well. And <laughs> that was in 1980 when it came out. And that's when I said, yeah, I'm doing this label on my own. I'm, you know, I figured I could, I couldn't fail any worse than I failed as a musician. So <laughs> well, what, what's interesting, <laughs> what's interesting there is you said what a big fan of metal you were and it doesn't sound like much of the music you were making as a musician yourself would fit that category uh, i will tell you this i have a wide palette for music and there's nothing worse than playing something you love in a garage for nobody so right. <laughs> so like with the nuns we played with blondie you know we, we play with, we were playing with all the best Ramones, all the best bands at the time so i said okay and i started i played bass in that band and then uh yeah, that band with Jeff Pilsen uh, was more of a, uh, it was sort of somewhere like a cheap trick crossed with Emerson Lake and Palmer <laughs> or UK or something. We had a keyboard player named Mark Robertson who went on to have a band called Cairo on Magna Carta, which has got a great keyboard work on it. And Jeff was singing and playing bass, and we had a bunch of great, great drummers. But at a certain point, um, I had a chance to introduce uh, Jeff to Don and George when they were putting the docking together. Uh, and so he got that audition, and uh, right around that same time, I was uh, a little before that, I guess, in 1980, I started the label, and I probably hooked Jeff up with them in 82. Chronologically, I get a little bit messed up. But um, anyway, yeah, so uh, after all that stuff, I found myself as a record collector going, 1980, you know, what's, you know, why can't I get enough cool records? So I was buying all the imports I could get at Record Exchange in uh Walnut Creek, which was kind of like the, I think like Johnny Zazula's place or that place in Florida that, you know, all these guys were getting all the cool imports in, you know, and so I was going over there all the time and buying stuff. And I just decided I should start this label. And that was in the summer, I think June of 1980. 
so I started collecting material uh, for that. And, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I just wanted to, I wanted to make records. I just thought that would be the coolest. And as a, a fan who bought so many records up to that point, I was always the person there's one in every town that probably has more records than most people. <laughs> you know, but I always was that guy. I'm still a nut collector right now and I buy stuff every day. Um, but, uh, anyway, yeah, so I started this, uh, label and I thought, well, you know, how come we have like all these great guitarists out of the UK and out of Germany and, all these guys, well, who's better, Michael Shanker, Willie Roth, who's better, Gary Moore, Michael Shanker. But like in America, we had a lot of great guitar players, but clearly I think Hendrix was the guy in the 60s that kind of broke all the rules. Van Halen was the guy in the 70s who broke, 70s broke all the rules. It was 1980, I was standing at the you know doorway to the future, and I thought, man, I want to try to find the next guy. You know, it's going to be the 80s guy, you know? And so U.S. Metal Unsung Guitar Heroes was the first release. So it was, Initially, well, I got a business degree in, 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 in the, the minor or whatever you want to call it that was uh, in marketing, you know, and I thought, you know, I don't want to compete with Columbia Records or whatever. I want to do a label that, you know, my friend Howie Klein at, at the time who was uh, owned 415 Records, which was a, a big new wave uh, label and had to deal with Columbia. Uh, he said something like yeah, heavy metal, that's dinosaur music. And I said, yeah, but it's my dinosaur music. And you know, it's a, I, I didn't expect things to, to get uh, as big as they did with, with the genre necessarily. I just knew I liked it, and that's why I wanted uh, to do it. And I had other friends that, that thought it was a crazy move because uh, it seemed like, you know, disco was king and punk rock, you know, was it turned into new wave and gotten softened up and, you know, didn't have the edge or the coolness that it had originally. And But I just wanted to do that, and I wanted to really look for guitar players that were great. And I figured, yeah, you know, if I can find 10 guys that are way better than I am, then, you know, that, that's a good reason for me to retire. <laughs> so that wasn't very hard either. I found a lot of really great guitar players. Well, and yeah, so, no doubt you signed some legendary guitar players, which we're going to get into. But I'm curious. So the first release, so you start a label called Shrapnel, and the first release is a compilation, which is called U.S. Metal, which is interesting because my friend Brian Slagle started Metal Blade, not long after and his first thing was metal massacre a compilation as well so so the idea of putting out a compilation i i guess is a good launching point at that time to try to establish a label putting out a little sampling of a bunch of different things was that the idea at the time yeah um i i didn't have a lot of money and i don't think brian had a lot of money either uh when brian and i first met he had a cool little fanzine like you know ditto it off you know on, like at a copy machine and he was uh, working in a record store and he was one of the real scenesters you know guys i'd love to talk to about what's coming up what's happening what did he heard and you know so we we became friends early on before he had uh, metal blade but like you said it was shortly after within a year or so uh he was up and running and doing really cool stuff um but yeah i think we both probably i mean i can't speak for him but i think a lot of it had to do with uh you know, finances and then yeah. thinking, okay, if we, if we find 10 great bands, put them on this record, one of them pops or whatever, then, then we've got, you know, we've got our best, at least I'm talking for myself now. I'm just going to, yeah, I figure I got my, my, my best laid out here on 10 artists and if, if one or two, you know, become something, then great. I'll make full records with them. And so that's kind of what happened. We, we, you know, put it out and then started making, like we put the rods out, I think on us metal one and then rods got dropped from Arista. So, uh, the manager, Pete Morticelli, who became, 
made me a partner in Magna Carta years later. Uh, Pete was managing them, and Pete gave me the third Rods album for Shrapnel. And, uh, you know, Marty Freeman, you know, the Hawaii record, Marty Freeman was the U.S. metal guy. So a lot of these guys on U.S. metal, uh, you know, they had bands or they joined other bands and whatever, and I, I kind of followed up and did full records on the Wild Dogs, uh, you know, culprit, a lot of those bands. So where does the, you know, I know there's history in here of you finding these guitar players because ultimately you started writing a column in a magazine oh, yeah. and they ended up submitting to you. Tell me how that all happened. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I was just getting ready to release that rock justice record. I was mentioning that's the thing I did with Pilsen and, and, and Leonard and Phil, a live show. Jeff came in later though, but, um, but that, that, um, that musical, uh, got reviewed in a bunch of magazines and, 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 you know, and got some good reviews. And, uh, I started, um, I guess jazz Obrick, the, one of the editors, the guitar player contacted me and, uh, he basically thought, Hey, this is a good idea. You've got, you know, when you find guys, let me know, you know? And so, uh, at some point I know that he, re I think he reviewed the, the rock justice record in there. And I, I it's funny, because I ended up at EMI, the only good thing that happened for me, bragging rights, is they put a picture of me on the cover of a billboard with a, with a guitar as an advertisement for the thing, uh, which, like I said, failed. We had an hour and a half long video in it. There was no video market in 1980 when it was released. <laughs> video market, so there's no way to promote the thing. But anyway, getting back to your, uh, what you had said, Jazz Ulbricht, a guitar player, contacted me. And so I brought uh, a couple guys from the U.S. Metal album, uh, Dan Meblin and Bob Gillis, down to a party at Guitar Player Magazine. And uh, Jazz was just such a, a great guy, the, uh, one of the editors. And uh, I brought the Shredders down, and they plugged in and kicked butt. And so um, anyway, I saw uh, the publisher, associate publisher or whatever, uh, or I said maybe editor-in-chief, and I went over to him and I said, hey, I got an idea for this column. I said, you know, I like to pick up magazines that read about guys who are on the street that have dreams like I, like, like I had as a guitar player. It's nice to see a guy with a row of Ferraris, I said, but, you know, the average guy that's buying your magazine is a guy on the street, you know, probably works hard, job comes home and plays guitar and chase away the blues, you know. And I said, I like to write about those guys. And he said, what do you have in mind? So it's like maybe three guys every issue. And he said, well, write me a sample. So wrote them a sample, and then they uh, started putting that out in uh, in Guitar Player Magazine every month, they call them, and I think that, yeah, that, that was after the label, but it was it was just right on top of the label. They did an article on the U.S. Metal album in there, and um, remember I mentioned a bunch of great Canadian bands, and uh, Rick Emmett, who turned out to be a really nice guy, he actually wrote me a letter and said, how could you leave Triumph out? <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I said, you're right. You're right. So I called him and apologized. And uh, no, I had like Gatto and all these bands mentioned in there, you know, Canadian hard rock. And uh, Triumph was a huge omission. But like today, I, you asked me something, I'm just going to ramble and I'll probably leave somebody out really important and it's not intentional. But right. that's kind of what happened. Guitar, Guitar Player Magazine invited us to a party. I brought the shredders. They shredded. I then talked to the editor, told him my idea, write a, write a column. So, I did some feature stories too. I did an Iron Maiden. I think that was a cover story. And I think Judas Priest and I think Scorpions. I'm not sure if they were all covers. I think they were, but yeah, I did that too. That, that was fun. 
And, uh, but that's where it all, all, I started getting a flood of demos, not only from the label, but also from, from the magazine call. So yeah, that definitely helped out quite a bit. It was a, it was a great promotional tie in. Sure. Well, it's, 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 uh, it's a great pipeline because here you are, I mean, you're out there and you're providing this press platform, but then if you found something that was really special, instead of giving it away to somebody else, you then had your own outlet to put it out through, through shrapnel. So it was a great way to do a and R in that time long before internet and computers and emails or anything like that. So that's a really interesting thing. What was the first guy, Mike, that you, you put out through shrapnel as far as guitar players that you found that way? Oh gosh. Um, let me think for a minute. It would have probably been the Wild Dogs. Um, they were really a good band. Dean Castronova actually was drummer. And uh, on the first album, I think it's half Dean on drums and half uh, Jamie from Black and Blue on drums. Oh, wow. Of all things. Yeah. And that was an early one. Culprit was an early one. The Rods was an early one. Steeler was probably the first, you know, real project where I said, okay, I'm getting my checkbook out, you know, and there's not much in the account. <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna take a take a shot here, and uh, I wanted to do something with Ingve and and Ron Keel, and I'm sorry, Ingve and uh, Billy Sheehan and Leonard Hayes, uh, like some kind of an instrumental record. And then Ron came up to the house right around the time I was uh, looking to put that together, and said, you know, hey, I got this thing happening in L.A. I brought his wife up, and uh, and I played him a bunch of guitar players. And he said, that's the guy right there. So, and so go. let me stop you. Let me stop you there. Yeah. So, because yeah. this is a huge moment. And this for me as a rock metal fan was when your label first came on my radar and I worked in a record store right out of high school. And I remember selling that Steeler record like crazy uh, when it initially came out. So Ingve comes to you through Ingve submitted a tape to you through the guitar column, right? Yes, but there's, I got to give, again, I talked about um, the record exchange in Walnut Creek, Bill Burkhardt, the proprietor, the guy that brought all the cool metal to the Bay Area and helped inspire me to, to want to do a label. Uh, Bill had a Swedish exchange student or something come into his store and had a demo of Ingve. When I was over there buying records one day in probably 1981, maybe, or maybe early 82, uh, Bill said, hey, you got to hear this Swedish guy, you know, and, and so I sat down with him. I said, whoa. And he said, he said, well, what do you think? You want to do something with him or something? I said, well, uh, one second there. Um, and I said, well, I, I would, but man, there's immigration. There's the cost of flying a guy over from Europe. You know, there's just, I just wasn't quite ready. I was a guy in my mid twenties. Right. And the idea of making a commitment like that just seemed a little ahead of me, you know, at that time. And so, um, I, uh, I decided that, uh, you know, I, I just was too much for me. So I, I had a, it was a, a, a thought of mine uh, to do something, but then I just got to put it out of my head. And then six months later or so, Ingve sent a demo to the call. And, uh, and then I said, okay, well, this is, you know, this is cool. And by then I'd sold more records. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I, I, maybe I'm ready to do something like that. And uh, so, yeah, that was cool. We got him out there and it, it, it's worked out 
So you you good. brought Ingve? Did you physically, not physically, but did you financially pay to bring Ingve to the U.S.? Were you his? Were you his pipeline to get to America? Actually, no. Um, I think I was going to pay for the record, right? And I think Ingve was going to get himself to L.A. So I think uh, I think Ingve's grandmother might have come up with the money. I think her name was Maud. I'm not sure though. It's, my memory is not not perfect, but yeah, I think his grandma helped him. I'm so he mistaken. came he came over to play in Steeler. Like he didn't come over just to kind of figure out what he was going to do. No, Did you send no. him Steeler material, and he said, "Yeah, I'll come play on that." Um, I must have, um, but I, if I didn't, he was just so excited about being able to come to America that that he just just came. I must have sent him something, but. It's hard to remember back then. I just know that uh, I have a letter from him where he was just expressing gratitude and really thankful to be able to be coming out to America and and have a chance to do something. But I didn't realize, and I don't think anybody realized how much aspirations, you know, what his aspirations were to do his own thing so soon because he wasn't a, he wasn't a singer, and 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 Steeler was established, you know, in L.A. But Ron was writing, you know, the majority of the songs. There's some are co-writes, but I mean, he was big part of the writing force. And I can see where Ingve, you know, and, and looking back, you know, where, where he would want more. Uh, but um, at the time, it just, it sounded like a great idea because nobody in LA that, that I knew of at the time had anybody that's, you know, could play that style like that. <laughs> it was a very, it was very special. Well, well, Ing- so, so it's interesting to me because this is Ingve literally as a kid, coming to America where he wanted to get to. And, you know, as you know, over the decades, Ingve has had a, has a pretty polarizing history. There's people that really like him. Some people he really turned off. Some people say, you know, egomaniac rubs people the wrong way. Others say he's great. What, what is your, what was your experience with like him at, at that very young age? What, what, what kind of, what kind of person did you find? Um, very headstrong, uh, pretty cool though. Uh, you know, I mean, I grew to like him more and more as the years went on, um, personally. But um, no, he, he was very confident and uh, very opinionated, and like anybody would be that had a huge talent like that. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, you know. In other words, like I, I don't think anything was unwarranted based on on, the, on what he was bringing to the table, talent wise, and he knew his worth. And he knew, you know, where he was in the world as far as guitar players. You know, he, he, he was very confident. Were you able, as Shrapnel Records in its early days, putting out a record like that Steeler record, and then suddenly everyone's talking about this guitar player that's on this record? How quickly did you see that happening? And, you know, it was a very short window for him and Steeler because – he came in, he did it. I don't even know how many live shows he did. And then he was off and then went and did Alcatraz. Was that a tough thing for you that you couldn't like really latch on to him and really become the label for Ingve going forward? No, I, I was just so happy to be able to make music with great people. It, it, it really wasn't a, I also felt like, Hey, I'm 26. However, I will, however old I was at the time, you know, what have I proven to anybody to hold him up for five records or whatever? I didn't have any regret for him moving on. I had regret for Steeler, but that didn't become, uh, you know, a, a bigger thing because Ron put a lot of work into that and whatnot. Uh, it became kind of a stepping stone, but 
no, I, I, I wanted him to move forward. <laughs> so not, not necessarily leave Steve ever. You know what I'm trying to say? In other words, like, I never thought, oh God, I should have signed him to five records because I never felt confident at that time that, that I had the machinery to, to guarantee somebody. So anyway, um, yeah, I just didn't feel confident that I had the, enough juice at the time to, to tie somebody up for a long time. Is is the Steeler album the biggest selling record in your catalog? You know, I don't think so. Uh, and the reason uh, being uh, that at the time, uh, I didn't have any licensees overseas. It took me uh, some time to establish that. And uh, that's something that I wanted to find the right the right person to work with and I became Roadrunners one of their very first uh, you know uh, licensors you know and, and, and Roadrunner handled uh, shrapnel from part of 1985 I think uh, going on uh, you know for many many years uh, and I and so yeah Steeler only came out in America it never was released anywhere else uh, legitimately uh, so um, it couldn't really compete with some of the stuff that had a lot of muscle you know, that sold all over the place. Uh, Vinny Moore and McAlpine were two of the very biggest ones, obviously Cacophony and Racer X, but uh, those first couple things, the, the Vinny and, and uh, Tony records uh, did really well worldwide. So let, let's move on to that then. So talk to me a little bit about where you go from there. Let, let's go through some of the, the other names now hawaii was marty friedman early on right yes it was and and hawaii had a guy named gary st pierre on bass and vocals gary became the singer in vicious rumors out in california when he moved from hawaii out in california and then Vinny moore was a guy that i found and suggested to uh vicious rumors but Vinnie Moore also had his own aspirations. And so once he did the, the Vicious Rumors record, he wanted to, to get on to his own thing too. So um, unfortunately, you know, that could have been cool. He stayed there a while, but when he went solo, that record was, was a big one. So, um, but yeah, there's just all this stuff, a lot of it interrelates like that. So Hawaii had Marty and Gary. Gary went into Vicious Rumors and then Vinny was brought in to play in that band too and do the first album, Soldiers of the Night. And there's a band called Le Mans that when I told my audience that I was going to be having you on to do this, somebody called in and said they wanted me to ask you about this group because I'm not familiar with them, but they said the first record was real heavy. The second record was way more commercial, but also very good. And that I guess some people from this band spun off into other groups. What, what was the story with that band? Well, Le Mans was a great band and uh, Peter Marino was a great, is a great rock singer and songwriter. And uh, he was about 23 or so, I think at the time, I, I'm not sure. And we brought Derek Frigo. Uh, he and Josh Ramos came out from Chicago. They had Le Mans in Chicago and Pete became the singer. And then his things, and they brought Kenny Stavropoulos out too. And uh, Kenny and Peter both ended up in Cacophony. Uh, but anyway, uh, Lamont did an album for me. Uh, the demos were shopped around uh, later, and uh, Columbia Records decided they wanted uh, Lamont. We made a really good record, and has a lot of cool songs on it. Derek Frigo is just playing really well on it. Pete's singing great on it. It's everybody's playing great. It's a really cool record. But it was supposed to be released 
the week that uh, everybody got busted for payola. And it was one of those big, you know, and, and the history of the record industry was one of those, you know, few times where there was a big, huge uproar. And so, uh, as I was told, uh, a lot of the independent promotion guys and whatnot that they would put on records like this, they were all kind of terminated and everything was brought in house and they had bigger records that they had to attend to in house. So a brand new band like that, they didn't have as much of an investment as the, in them as they had in a lot of this other stuff nor was the payback as sure as some of the bigger artists. So the promotional attention went to the, uh, you know, the big artists that they are, that they already had or people that they had a, a greater investment in. And this is what I was told, you know, I can't say for sure, but that, that that's what I was told. So basically that record, uh, didn't really get much uh, push at all. And, uh, shortly, uh, thereafter that, that, that record came out, I guess in 86, so I guess it was probably maybe, I'm not good on all the years here, but I guess it was probably around 88-ish when uh, Pete Marino uh, came into Cacophony. But he was brought in initially as more like a session singer. And uh, his singing in Cacophony is nothing like the singing on uh, that, that Le Mans album on Columbia. I think that Le Mans album on Columbia is, is quite a AOR uh, for AOR people. I think, I think it's one of, the, one of the records that a lot of people talk about. Because it, it really, with, with any with any justice, uh, Pete and those guys would have had a, 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 a big record. But, you know, unfortunately, that's, that's the record industry. Yeah, no, clearly the story of the record industry. You mentioned Cacophony a couple times, which is known, you know, which is Jason Becker and uh, Marty Friedman. Was it your idea to put the two of them together in that? Yes. Uh, Jason was about 16 when I heard him. And Marty and I had been working together and talking about a solo project for quite a while. Marty moved out to San Francisco. Um, Marty uh, and I were talking about, you know, his next record and what we were going to do. And I was really excited about it. And then Jason Becker comes along. And I said to Marty, you know, this, this guy's young, but he's got something. And I think if the two of you guys work together, uh, I think the way he's developing from demo to demo, he's just moving fast. You know, he's, he's going to be somebody to really, you know, reckon with. And so I think Marty, maybe he'd have to tell the story, you know, his, from his perspective. But I think he kind of maybe went over there sort of like, okay, Mike wants me to meet this guy. <laughs> Marty's a guy that always has a lot of vision. So he's not usually looking for somebody for ideas. He's got a lot of ideas, you know, and he's good that way. So, but he, he took a leap of faith and went over to meet Jason and just probably lived about 20 miles away from each other. And he went over there and I was all excited. And I talked to him and I said, oh, how did it work out? He said, man, I, I think I think this guy and I could do something. And so those guys just kind of fed off each other and just both of them got, you know, better and better, you know, just over a six-month period. And so when that Cacophony record came out, uh, we get to record that Jason was 17 years old wow. and, uh, and maybe even that old when he did perpetual burn. So his parents had to come in and uh, go through, there was a legal process or whatever that we were going through because he was a, a minor and uh, his parents uh, and I, and did all the right, we did all the right stuff so that, uh, you know, that could be legitimately released and wouldn't have to worry about anything in the future. And, um, because, you know, sometimes people make contracts with their kids. And they go, hey, I was only a kid. What did he know? But, right. you know, 
it was, it was, they had a lawyer and was done through the, I think we did it all the, the right way, at least as I knew it back then. What did I know? I was still, still pretty young, but, um, anyway, yeah. So we just put this band together and they put these guys together that were, we thought were really cool. And it was a, you know, that's the thing, like a, to get a lot of the great records that I, I mean, great in my mind. Um, anyway, uh, you know, these weren't four guys always sitting, uh, you know, grew up in high school together. You know, a lot of times you're bringing a guy in from, you know, New York, one's from Pennsylvania and somebody from somewhere else, you know? And so unfortunately the reason why a lot of the shrapnel artists didn't get bigger is that, you know, most of them didn't tour at all. And the ones that did maybe went out once or twice you know, so with a few exceptions, but there wasn't, there were, they weren't, a lot of these things weren't like Chastain, for instance, I knew Leather because Pete Marino introduced me to her and I thought she was a great singer. And so Chastain was looking to do something and I put them together and brought Fred Corey out, who was an unknown drummer, you know, way before Cinderella. I brought him out to play drums and then later the next one, Ken Mary. Both those guys have had good careers in the music business. But, you know, I was just looking for exceptional people and wanted to record the very best. And so I missed out on the guys that went to, you know, went to high school together and, and whatnot, you know, because I, I was always looking for better, you know, better players. I want to record better things. So it wasn't such a great strategy when it comes to building bands. A lot of these S2 bands made great records, but personalities weren't always, you know, made for each other. Of all these records that you released on Shrapnel with all these people, especially early on, uh, I don't have them all in front of me and I don't know, but did you personally produce all of them? Or did other producers come in and work as the label progressed? Or was part of the deal that you wanted to go in the studio and see the record through? You know, um, that's a good question. Like, if you take something like Racer X, um, Racer X, uh, Paul Gilbert came to me at age 15 and looking to play with Ozzy. And uh, I love telling this story because uh, he, he sounded, uh, the record, the tape he sent me sounded great, right? And so... Uh, he said, can you get me a hookup? And I, I said, well, I've talked to Sharon a couple of times. Maybe uh, I know how to get a hold of her. I said, but so tell me about yourself. Are you, are you fat? No, 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 no. Are you bearded? <laughs> that wasn't cool. You know, no. Uh, short hair, bald? No, no. Uh, asked him all these questions that I said, you know, are you old, too old? No, no. How old are you? Oh, 15. <laughs> so, wow. I said, that's, can't believe it, man. You're great. I said, well, let's, let's just keep in touch here. And, and then let's, let's look at doing something, you know, down the road together. So from that moment on, Paul just kept sending me demos and whatnot. And, uh, so racer X was another one of those kind of things, uh, but that was a little more organic because John had lived in the town in Novato in Novato where I, I had lived. And, uh, he had played in a band with this kid that was one of the shredders. I brought down the guitar player magazine for that, that party that I mentioned earlier. Dan Meblin. Uh, so I knew about John from living in my town, but he was down at the Bass Institute and he met Paul Gilbert and then they had a drummer they liked to play with. So they were all ready to go finally, but needed a singer. So first guy I recommended was Mark Slaughter. And then uh, Mark Slaughter, um, he uh, he made a great demo, but they said, well, who else you got? And I said, well, I got this guy, Jeff Martin. And so Jeff Martin, uh, recorded with him and I think maybe because of the, the heaviness of it and the Judas Priest you know <laughs> I don't know what Jeff's an awesome singer and just an awesome guy so the chemistry was was better for them 
So uh, they decided to go uh, that direction. And uh, so I, I think to answer your question, because this is one of those bands, I don't think I produced them. I think that I helped go through material, you know, and maybe went through some arrangements and got things, you know, maybe to the point where, you know, I think everybody was, was, was fairly happy. And then I think I'd have to go look at credits, but I think maybe Steve Fontano ended up producing those. This is with Racer X you're talking about. Yeah. 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 I think so. And and I'm curious, I'm curious, Mike, did you, did Paul Gilbert ever audition for Ozzy? Oh, no. No, because you said he came um, to you wanting that, but it, did you become yeah, I, like I know you became and still are to some degree like the guitar whisperer, the guy that people goes to to consult on guitar players or to find somebody, and I know that became a really big thing for you. Did, were did Sharon and did Ozzy come to you when they needed guitar players? Were you did no, you become no, that I, kind I, of sounding board guy? I think I talked to them regarding drummers once and recommended some some people. Um, I might have even been the one that recommended Fred Quarry because Fred was in the band for a little while. Um, but um, no, I, and the worst thing here is I don't want to take credit for anything I, I haven't done, you know, and, and I, I would tend to opt to not take credit for something, uh, hopefully, you know, rather than take credit. But it, some of this stuff's been so long ago. There were 550 records between all the labels. And so it, it gets a little bit confusing who does what. Um, sure. But no, no, I, I did not uh, recommend any guitar players for Ozzy. They never came to me uh, looking for anybody. Um, no. When you um, saw, you mentioned Derek Frigo earlier, who sadly passed away. But Derek, you, you had at a very early age, uh, Paul Gilbert at 15, Jason Becker at 15 or 16, uh, Marty Friedman, of course, super young. All of these guitar players went on to do other big things. Of course, Marty goes to Megadeth, Derek Frigo, Enough's Enough, Jason Becker, David Lee Roth. I mean, all of this stuff. Ingve goes on to this major career as a solo artist after Alcatraz. I would imagine for you, that has, being at your core like me and so many others, just a music fan, that has to feel very rewarding for you to have been, on, been in on the ground floor of people's careers like that. I would imagine so, right? Well, I, I, I guess if I ever think about it, but honestly, I'm more of an obsessed fan than, than I was when I was a kid. I'm buying records and listening to stuff, and, and uh, I just feel lucky that I had a career where, where I could do that. But no, I, I don't really reflect on this too much. Uh, it's just, you can relate to this. It's just the life you led, right? You got to do what you wanted to do, and uh, you're just doing your thing. And so, yeah, I... I'm happy that it worked out that way, but I guess to really appreciate it, I guess people would have to see all of the guitar players I didn't work with <laughs> because we're talking about tens of thousands probably. I don't even know how maybe that's extreme, but I mean like postal bins filled up, you know, taking multiple ones at home sometimes, you know, from a visit, like stuff was coming from all over the place. But like uh, Jason Becker, that is a guitar player that I did hook up with David Lee Roth. And uh, I did recommend him and he did get that gig. So, yeah, there were situations where I did do that quite a bit. But then there were a lot of things that, no, of course not, didn't have anything to do with. But I did. That's one of the things I did do out of the guys you mentioned. But I do want to say something. I had an engineer by the name of Steve Fontano. And he and I did the Wasp album uh, when uh, I got hired to do that with Blackie. And I went down there with Steve. And Steve was the guy I went to junior high school and high school with. And he had gone to work at the record plant. 
while I was off playing in all those bands just post high school. And um, he just had a really great talent. And all, a lot of these artists today, when they think back on Shrapnel, whether I produced something or whether he did, people just love that guy. And, and I do. And I think he's done maybe 120 records or something for me, a whole bunch. He went on to get a couple of Grammys. He worked on Santana's Supernatural record and worked with a bunch of other other large people over time. But he had paid his dues in the record plant family uh, before starting to work for Drapel for all those years. But yeah, I had a guy that could they could produce stuff. They could sit there and go, "No, that's a bad chorus." You know, "Hey, that's a better verse." You know, he he was he was very talented as a songwriter and and a producer and whatnot. He grew. He and I both kind of grew together, you know, because we've known each other so many years. And uh, anyway. Well, here's what I want to do, Mike. I want to I want to take a quick break here. But you touched on an area of your career that I do want to talk about because you mentioned Wasp and another record around that time that you produced that I absolutely love. I want to get some something from you on that and other guitar players we need to talk about. And the other thing I'll tell the audience right now is – Mike had has multiple record labels that have come out specializing in other genres of music for the purposes of this conversation we will stay predominantly on the rock and metal stuff because that's what my audience is most in tune with. But, uh, you know, going through your discography and all the other offshoots of stuff, whether it's blues or jazz or what have you that you did uh, and continue to do is is amazing. So I do want to acknowledge that. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. I'm so glad we've able we're able to just uh, spend some time here talking about his amazing career, and that is Mike Varney, who continues to join us here, talking predominantly about his label Shrapnel, among other things. And and Mike, along that among other things category, you touched on this in the last segment when you said producing the first Wasp record and. Wasp for me and that record is important because it was one of my first ever radio interviews, Blackie and Chris coming into my studio. I have a legendary story about that and I've always been kind of connected to them because of that. But that record came out on Capitol and I forget that 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 you produced that even though it wasn't released on Shrapnel. Talk a little bit about getting involved with Wasp and how it came that you produced that record because the the people that knew Wasp in L.A. early on all talk about the completely insane live shows and over-the-top shows that was going on. Um, how'd you get involved? Was it tough to capture that? Uh, how did you have a history with Blackie? Tell us about Wasp. Well, I think the first time I saw Blackie was with a band called Sister at the Mabuhay Gardens. And that would have been 1970 is when I was playing probably in the nuns in the punk era. I mean, the Ramones even played the Maboy Gardens and, and Devo played there. But um, anyway, um, yeah, it was, I saw him there. I even took, I even took a promo photo. They had some lying around to take. So I took an eight by 10 glossy with me. And then, uh, you know, a few years later, I see Blackie popping up again uh, in sister. His name was Blackie Guzman. <laughs> and he got rebranded Blackie, Blackie Lawless. And I want to say, first of all, uh, 
yeah, that was a co-production with Blackie and with me. Blackie is a very deep musical person that is so much deeper than uh, than what somebody may, may think of as, as a gimmicky heavy metal guy if they haven't really listened to his records and haven't really realized how how serious of a, of a musician and musical entity that he is, you know. So uh, anyway, I saw him pop up again, and I think I went to see Wasp in L.A., and I offered to make a record with him, and I think the budget was going to be like $20,000 or something. And he said to me uh, something like, hey, thank you, but I've been doing this for quite a while, and I've got, I've got some ideas as to what I need to do. And I'm, I'm going to keep working when I'm working, and when I'm ready, I'm going to walk up Vine Street. I'm going to stand at the Capitol Records Tower. I'm going to look in the 12-story uh, window of the A&R department, and I'm going to be looming there like King Kong. And I'm going to say, Blackie Lawless, this time has come. You know, uh, and then there's probably an expletive, <laughs> and, uh, give me a record deal or something to that effect, right? So it was like prophetic because he didn't know Rod Smallwood at the time. He didn't have, that was just his vision he had for himself. He's, by the time he gets up, ready to get his deal, it's going to be with Capital, and it's going to be him looking through the 12-story window with his feet on the cement. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. And he said, like King Kong. And, man, he would come up with stuff like that that's just so quotable. He's so brilliant. Uh, so, anyway, uh, yeah, I offered him that deal, and I wanted to produce him. And he he wasn't uh, he, he wasn't unappreciative. You know, he, he was, I think, thankful, you know. Uh, that so you wanted to, just to, so I'm clear here, you wanted to sign him to Shrapnel and produce the record, yeah. and he had bigger yeah. bigger aspirations uh, yeah. of going to Capitol. <laughs> Rightfully so. But, um, so, yeah, and then what happened then, uh, I just turned in this record by Icon to Capitol Records, uh, namely John Carter. John Carter was a huge presence in the industry, uh, a lot of times kind of behind the scenes, but he uh, produced the early Sammy Hagar records on Capitol after Montrose. Sure. He co-wrote Incense and Peppermints for the Strawberry Alarm Clock. He had the idea that Tina Turner had a whole other career left in her and brought her back for the Private Dancer record and produced some of that. Produced the Motels, co-wrote their hit, Take They All Out of Lover. John Carter was a serious uh, talent, but he was an A&R guy. And we got along pretty well. And... He signed Icon, which I brought into him. And then so when Blackie was looking at producers, I think he, he might have said, have you talked to anybody? Or somehow my name came up. And as I understood it, John Carter said something like, well, hey, this guy was willing to put his own money behind you. I like what he does. Uh, maybe you guys would be good working together. Something along those lines. And so then that put us together. And I will say this. I don't know if I've ever worked as hard well, probably harder because I was out of my own element it was down in Los Angeles and I was staying with my wife in a hotel on the strip I think the riot house or whatever for a lot of that and uh, but Blackie we worked six days a week 12 hours a day and Blackie was on point for every second of those <laughs> of that time there wasn't a minute where he wasn't 100% in the game this is not like some you know 
guy that's uh, getting hammered and coming in, you know, delivering 2% of what he can deliver. He delivered a hundred percent and beyond. And he was, I'd say fairly controlling, but because he had a complete vision and he knew exactly what he wanted and he knew how to get it. So, um, I will say I've done a lot of producing on records where I have, uh, had to help rewrite choruses or put in new choruses or whatever. And a lot of times uncredited, sometimes credited. Blackie didn't need much help. He really, he really pretty much had it laid out. I'd was like to it, take more credit for it. Oh, go ahead. What, what Mike was, I, I had heard and so many people have told the stories about seeing Wasp before getting that first record out and how completely insane the shows were. And, you know, all that went on there. Did Now, you said you saw Sister, so I imagine that you also uh, ended up seeing Wasp early on. Uh, did you go to those shows before they were signed? And were they as over the top as people said? And if you did, were you sitting there trying to figure out how the hell do you capture this in the studio? You know, I that's a good question, but I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, a recollection is not really strong on that point. Uh, I know that I've seen them quite a few times and sometimes early on, but I can't remember, you know, if it was, you know, two weeks before they were signed or two weeks after. <laughs> but um, I can just say this, you know, I remember being, they're being like lying around the troubadour and, you know, way more people I think than could ever get in there. And, uh, and I, yeah, it's, I don't want to say because I, I, I think I did, but I, I, I hate to be wrong. So right. uh, all I can say is I've seen the band a lot of times and yeah, I made them an offer. So I must've come down and seen them and been blown away. Cause I remember being really blown away, but I can't remember any of the specifics. I remember, you know, some woman in blood and <laughs> saw blade and I mean the usual stuff. Right, right, I don't right. have a real, a real, a real clear picture. I want to, I want to ask you about another band that you just mentioned, which is tied in with capital and, and that you produced that I personally love and that I ended up signing when I was at Megaforce and doing a oh, third right. record with. And, yeah. and, and the reason why I did that was because I loved the two albums on capital so much. And it's a band called icon from Phoenix. And, you know, I'm curious how they came on your radar. Did did Wexler, Dan Wexler, or, or John Aquilino at the time, the guitar players, did they did they come to you because they were guitarists looking for guitar-based records, or did they shop to no. you as a, as a band trying to make that sort of record? I think I might have bought that School Days EP, or maybe Dan sent it to me. But I remember I heard Mean Street Machine. I thought, holy cow. So... I got a hold of Dan and um, we started talking about doing this record. Dan's another guy who was very, uh, you know, he was very driven and motivated and he knew, you know, what he wanted. Um, and so, yeah, I approached them about coming out and making a record. And uh, luckily, uh, you know, Carter at Capitals saw the vision and uh, signed the band. And again, Pete Morticelli, who became, I became his partner in Magna Carta Records, prog rock label. Uh, Pete uh, was brought in to manage them. And, uh, you know, it's just, I, I went out when they toured in Texas and they played a couple of Cardis. And uh, I went, went on the bus for a couple of uh, gigs and uh, they were just, they were just awesome. And uh, I can't really say 
what it was that, uh, you know, they, they, they caused that not to work. But I know they had a lot of good breaks and they did get out there and, and did tour. Um, but yeah, I so- sure you sonically, sonically, um, Mike, when you talk about the Wasp record, and you talk about that first Icon record for people that know it. And again, I know Icon, unfortunately, a band that did not make it. But, uh, you know, I, I truly love. When, but when you talk about those debut records that you produced or co-produced, I love how they sound sonically. They're very thick. They're very punchy. There's a, uh, there's a certain sound to those records, which, you know, you, you played a role in getting as a producer or co-producer. Can you talk about what your what your approach was to making those records and like where your influence was coming from as a guy behind the console? Because these records didn't come out on your label. You were just working as a producer at that point for them. Yeah, well, Icon might have come out on my label, but the idea was that we would shop it first and see what we could get. And if we couldn't get a deal, then it would have come out on my label. Um, yeah, the Icon engineer was a completely different engineer than – the Wasp, which was Steve Fontana on Wasp. I believe that Icon, I'd have to look back, but I think it was Alan Suddeth. Alan Suddeth was a technically brilliant engineer, but he was not a heavy metal guy, you know? And uh, so uh, a lot of that, I got to give credit to Dan Wexler. Um, He, you know, had a bunch of cool gear and, uh, you know, he, he had a pretty good idea what he was looking for. As a guitar player, I always use, you know, try to use the best gear I could get and try to make it sound great. And as all the records that I listened to, you know, I would try to get them to sound like that. And uh, back then you wanted a, a big drum sound, but I never wanted it to be too big so that it took over a, a mix like certain records seem to have done. Uh, but I can't really share anything really, uh, you know, I mean, honestly, we just have good gear and good people. Yeah. <laughs> you put the mics in the right place. Uh, you know, and then also you get to sort of have a, you know, I hate to use the word, uh, well, you have a modus operandi, I guess, you know, and you can apply that to different people and depending on who they are and what they hear, what they sound like, what they deliver, what their, what their music sounds like, you know, it, it, you could use the same, same, you know, principles, but it'll be completely different based on who you're working with. I mean, some people try to, put everybody through their homogenized uh, template, <laughs> you know, and I, everybody has their own, but when you're working with different engineers and whatnot like that, it's, you know, that's the main thing too. A lot of later on in life, I couldn't find after Steve left, it was really hard to find someone to replace him. Um, but anyway, no, I, Dan was right there uh, with uh, every minute of that icon record and Blackie was there with every minute of that wasp record. And, you know, they also had, had ideas on what they wanted things to sound like. And luckily in both cases, we were pretty, pretty clear. Um, did, did it, did it floor you when you heard the second icon record night of the crime? Because it, that's a really interesting turn there for that band. I know you didn't have anything to do with it, but that album is, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I, I did. Oh, you did. So, so for, well, before you pick that up, let me just explain this to the audience for people that don't know this band. These two records are very different. The same band made them, but the first record, very heavy Judas Priest style metal. Second record, super polished synthesizer commercial, but universally 
held as an amazing record, and it is. It's just so, so different. It was a like a total 180 from what they had done on the first record. So so tell me about that. I didn't know you were involved in the second record. Well, I, I, I really wasn't, but to say I wasn't involved at all, it, it's not exactly true either. But, um, no, I just co-wrote one of those songs, and uh, that that's all I did. Um, what happened was I think Pete Morticelli and I and maybe Steve Fontano uh, went out to uh, Arizona and uh, I went to rehearsal and the idea was that I was going to uh, do the next record with Steve. And so we, that's when I think, yeah, we wrote rock, rock my radio or whatever. And, and we worked on some other songs out there. And uh, so then, uh, then I found out that we weren't doing it. But when I found out that Eddie Kramer who did Jimmy Hendrix Electric Ladyland? <laughs> I found out he was going to be the producer. What, what am I going to say? Right, right. I mean, that, that, that's uh, one of my all-time favorites. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, that was an honor. Well, <laughs> if anybody, for, for people that haven't heard those records, both of them are fantastic. They're, they're very, they very different, very different records, but but really, really killer records. And then when I started working with them and I signed them to Megaforce, it was a different singer at the time. And that record's quite good, but I, I like the the two records on Capitol even better than the one I did with them because it was just a different time. But I, I, can, I agree, uh, Wexler was a very driven guy. Apparently... You know, Dan still gets in touch with me, and apparently they've got the original band, and they're trying to do something again. But it seems like oh. he calls me, and he's like, we're going to do this, and then it doesn't happen, and this has been going on for years now. So as a fan, well, I hope he does, but we'll see. No, me, me, me too. When I knew him, pretty much everything he said he was going to do happened. So yeah. It, 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 uh, but, you know, getting people motivated to get older, it, 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 it's not it's not really, uh, not really easy. But um, I will say something, though. Uh, the Lamont's first album was really heavy, right? And then when we got the deal with Columbia, that was much more of an AOR record. And the first Icon record, like the first Lamont's album, were made for Shrapnel, but with an idea of making it a little more commercial so that you know we could get a deal with it. But I think in both cases, uh, once the bands were sure that they had exposure to a deeper promotional channels, you know, different, you know, once they had exposure to a bigger machine, uh, they, you know, and, and we, you know, nat naturally uh, in the case of Icon, they did it on their own, but with Lamont, there was a, a thought like, Hey, we've got a chance to really do something. We should, you know, we shouldn't hide all that great songwriting you've got. We should definitely put that out to the forefront, you know? Sure. And, uh, I think that that's probably what happened with Icon too, because both those, both the second records were more, uh, more AOR than, than, the first Lamont and the first Icon, which were both originally recorded and could have been, you know, Lamont's was shrapnel and Icon would have been shrapnel. So I think we, I never wanted to try to make AOR records for my label. <laughs> you know, I, right. I wanted them to be, to keep the heaviness and keep uh, interest that the real fans would have. You know, if you make an AOR record and don't have a huge promotional machine behind you and it doesn't immediately resonate with radio and, and, and the press and whatnot, then it's a, you have a lot smaller audience, you know, built in, right? Because you lose a lot of the heavier people. So it's a trade-off. It's like Night Ranger going from, you know, Dawn Patrol, you know, to the second album. And, you know, they made the right move. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no doubt. Hey, Mike, I'm curious about when you're, you're ear for guitar players in all the genres and even to this day. So 
going back to when you first started doing this and you, you started to have to go through these endless amounts of tapes because, of course, there was no internet. People would be physically sending you packages and what have you. And then you find guys and bring guys to the world like Ingve Malmsteen or Marty Friedman or Jason Becker, Tony McAlpine, uh, Richie Kotzen, who I want to talk about in a second, Vinnie Moore, just tons of guys. Don't what? forget Greg Howe. Greg Howe, yes. Greg, Greg, Greg Howe. Of forget. course. But but I'm curious, like, what what were you listening for? Like, the Shred era was happening. Paul Gilbert, as you mentioned, you talked about Paul earlier. The, the whole Shred, very speed style of playing was happening. What what were the things that you you gravitated to that you said, this is a guy I want to work with, this is a guy I want to put out on Shrapnel, this is a guy that I think is special because I'm imagining there were a lot of people that were trying to cop that style, but what specifically were you looking for and listening for in guitar players to, to feel they would make the cut to be on shrapnel? Well, first of all, they all had to be way better than I, than I was, <laughs> which wasn't too difficult. Well, uh, well hold, let but... me stop you there because uh, I've talked to a lot of friends and they tell me I've not heard you play, but a lot of people have told me you're quite a player yourself. So that that is a bar. It, you know, I know you're being modest, but that is a decent bar from what I've heard. Okay. Well, well, thank you. Yeah. I, I just, okay. Michael Schenker, Gary Moore, Uli Roth. Those were probably some of my favorite, my very favorite guys. And luckily I got to work with, uh, Michael Schenker on those UFO records and on those uh, MSG and the solo Which we'll get to for sure. That that was a huge deal, huge deal for me. Um, But those are very different style guitar players than the people we're talking about. That was a different era of playing. You you really introduced the whole shred thing. Yeah, I I, I wanted to, I loved Al Daniola too, by the way, so did Ingve. But um, I I wanted to, uh, I wanted to break boundaries. You know, I, I, I wanted to do I wanted to take something someplace where it hadn't been, you know, in rock before. Like I knew that we had a potential to create some kind of movement and that all these guys were out there and, and, and someone needed to go out there and find them. And cause a lot of the guys, a lot of the guys I picked to make records with, I mean, I really had to grill these guys and, and try to get a sense. Okay. If I hand this guy the ball, is he going to take it over the line? Is he going to make a touchdown for me? Like, all kinds of great players I talked to, but I think, ah, oh, this guy's a little too laid back. I don't think this guy's going to get out of his bedroom. You know, well, this guy's hungry. This guy's ready to move to California. Okay. You know, uh, so I picked guys, not only the fact that they were great, but also that they were motivated, that they, they had decided that they were basically lifers and that they also had to look, look remotely cool too, so that they could, you know, have a chance of having it, having, having that kind of a career at the time. So, yeah, I just, I guess the guys I was listening to as a guitar player, Al Miolo, you know, Lee Roth, there's some heavy technique there. And then like Vinnie Moore, yeah, Al Miolo was back there and is, is, you know, Tony and Vinnie both had a lot of the same, you know, influences as Ingve. Uh, even though, you know, some people would say, Oh, they copied Ingve, but they really didn't. They were both all, they were all very distinctive guitar players, but Tony had a degree in classical music performance, <laughs> you know, and Vinnie, uh, you know, grew up listening to Blackmore and, and grew up listening to uh, Aldemiola. So, to, in a roundabout way, I guess all I can really say is I was listening for something that I thought was really good and better than the other thousand tapes I just listened to that, that, that weren't as good. <laughs> you know, just looking for exceptional 
exceptional talent. And a lot of cases, what could this talent be in a few years? Okay, Marty, you're 19. I think you're going to be great in three years. You know, Jason Becker, you're 16. I think the way I hear you now at 17, I think you're going to be, you know, great. So I had to sort of gauge people along the way and see how, how fast they were making progress and how hard they were working. Richie Costin would be one of those guys, which like I said, we'll talk about later. Well, no, we can talk about him now. I mean, I'll jump in on that because Richie's one of my favorite talents across the board. And I, yes, I helped Richie out a lot in the last 20 years. He, he first came yes. on my radar because uh, I had always heard of him. I knew he was in Poison. I knew he was in Mr. Big. I knew he had made records with you very early on. But I had no idea of the well-rounded musician he was. I had no idea he could sing. And it's a funny story because it was about 20 years ago and I was approached by a, a publicist named Nancy Sale, who I think you know. Yeah. And she yep. contacted me and she said, hey, Richie Cotson's coming to New York. He's got some new guitar pedal. Will you have him on your show? I didn't know him at all. And I said, sure, I, I, I'll have him in. I'll meet him. And he came in that night and uh, <laughs> we had a great conversation. And I just knew him from the way I knew him, as I told you. And then as he left, he handed me his last few records, which he had done himself. And he said to me, check these out. This is what I'm doing now. And I will never forget this, Mike, because I put the CD in my car to, driving from New York City back to my home in New Jersey. I'm about to go through the Holland Tunnel. And I'm listening to a record he had made at the time called Into the Black. And the first thing I hear is his voice. And I was floored because I had no idea he could sing. And when, yeah. I, when I got to my home in New Jersey, I called him. And I was just like, dude, this is like a whole, this is not what I thought. This is crazy. And we started having this conversation and we built this friendship. And I said, yeah. you know, I, I rarely do this because like you, I've got so many things coming at me, but I was so blown away. And I yeah. said to him, what, what can I do here? And this is crazy, but this is the truth. At that time, 20, 22 years ago, he couldn't even get a gig in America. Like he, he, he had said to me, I'd love to play in New York because my parents are from Pennsylvania. They can come see me. And I started playing his music and built something for him. And then, yeah, you know, you know as, years went, as the years went on, I, I had the idea to plug him into the winery dogs and they did it. Yeah, uh, they're doing their that. thing. But yeah. that was a case where it was like, we didn't have any previous history to that. I didn't even really have a huge knowledge of him, but I was completely floored because I didn't yeah. know there was more to him than his caliber of guitar playing, which is off the charts. But you you got connected with him when he was really a kid, and he's told me a little bit about that story. But tell me about yeah. hearing Richie Kotzen and finding him in his teens, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, so he sent me stuff, Arthur's Museum, uh, which is a vinyl record, which is quite rare. Which he, which he was in, left. that was an early band of his? Yes, uh-huh. And uh, he sent me that, and he sent me some things. And he wasn't yet on the level of, of McAlpine or Vinny um, or, or himself <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> right, even. right. Uh, no, so he's a guy that, to me, kind of developed in the public eye, you know. So think about Richie and Greg Howe. I found them both around the same time. And, you know, it was, kind of went like this. If I didn't get a tape from Richie on Monday, I'd get one from Greg. I didn't get one from Greg on Monday. A Tuesday, I got one from Richie. It was like the guys were really super motivated, and they were getting tons of material out. And I just thought, man, I just can't believe, uh, you know, how prolific these guys are. And so 
I made a deal with Greg. We started working together and um, I'm still, you know, getting stuff from Richie. And, you know, I thought this guy just keeps getting better and he's going to keep getting better. And that's what I was talking about. I'm handing the guy the ball and I'm going to make it, you know, make a touchdown. Like Richie's one of the guys I thought, okay, if I do something for this guy, he's going to just keep doing it and make more out of whatever I, I can help him do. He'll make way more out of it. So got him out there with Steve Smith, you know, from Journey and uh, Stu Ham, who's been, obviously, everybody knows probably Satriani and Vise, a uh, bass player at different times, and made this cool record. He got out to Chicago. I think I might have I think I hooked him up with Ibanez, or maybe he was already with Ibanez. I can't remember. A lot of my guys were at Ibanez that damn show. And uh, Paul Gilbert, I think, at the time, and, and maybe Vinny still. Um, Anyway, I uh, went out there to Chicago, and he played, I think it was opening for Steve I at the Chicago NAM show. It was for, for some marquee uh, guy. But Richie, back then, because, uh, you know, he, he was he was new and whatnot, as a showman, he was all over the stage. You know, now he can stand in one place and sing, and nobody nobody thinks about him having to jump around. <laughs> but back, back when he got started, you know, he was really uh, – Really, quite, quite, uh, you know, moved a lot on stage and had had a a, a a great presence and his guitar playing was great. So I think that night I said something like, or the next time I talked to him, whatever I said, next record we're doing is a vocal record, you know, and you're singing, you know, or something. He said, oh, I've sung some backgrounds, but I'm not really, you know, it's not I'm not a lead singer or whatever. I said, well, we'll cultivate a voice then. He said, Jimi Hendrix isn't exactly Pavarotti, but you know, it was enough. <laughs> enough to carry him and I said you just look so great you sound so great you move so great if you could sing I said you know I think so let's just see what happens so he started sending me some stuff and I thought man this guy's got a natural gift so after about two or three months early on I can't remember exactly and Greg Howe always says that I remember everything wrong but he likes my stories <laughs> but anyway, this is, so I apologize if I have any of this incorrectly but I, 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 not correct but I think so anyway, at some point I said, hey, there's this band called Free. I'd like you to check out this song, Fire and Water, and see if you can sing it, record, record it for me. He goes, oh, okay. So he, he, he plays it, records it, sends it to me, and man, the vocal is great. So I, uh, I'm hanging out with Eric Martin, and I said, hey, Eric, um, listen to this guy that I'm working with. And I played him the track, and he said, that sounds too much like Paul Rogers. And I thought, okay, not a bad thing. <laughs> that's a that's that that's pretty incredible. Obviously, Richie's found his own voice, but back then he was trying to figure out, well, what have I got to work with? And man, he was just he was you know whatever he's done, it would have happened without me. I just happened to be right there when it was happening. Uh, you know, clearly he would have been a singer, but I just happened to be there at the right time. So we did that next record, and then uh, Richie got a manager. Interscope deal came down. And um, Richie just kept getting better and better and better. And the records he made with Greg Howe, those two records, they were made under strange circumstances of people living, you know, in different states across the country. And there's some really cool stuff that those guys, you know, did together. Uh, but yeah, Richie is Richie and Greg, they're two of my very favorite guys. They're both from Pennsylvania. Paul Gilbert's from Pennsylvania. What is it about shrapnel in Pennsylvania? I don't know. <laughs> especially uh, especially you guys are in the Bay Area, you know, f f as far away from you as you could be from Pennsylvania. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's amazing. But um, anyway, yeah, yeah, Richie is uh, one of my all-time, all-time favorites. 
uh, as are most every artist, uh, you know, because I wouldn't assign them if I didn't, I didn't like them. But that guy just kept on getting better and better. I will say a funny story. So he gets signed to Interscope, and uh, Jimmy Iovine uh, called me. I know that sounds like I'm dropping names, and I am. No, no, no. That's what you're supposed it, to do. I don't believe it. It happened. It, 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 it happened. And uh, he said, so uh, we got a great guitar player here. You know, got any ideas for a lead singer? And I said, no, I don't. I said, Richie's a lead singer. And he said, well, no, I mean, you got, you know, Van Halen, you got David Lee Roth. You got, I can't remember, he gave some examples. I can't remember what they were. I said, no, he's the singer. I said, you know, like, uh, like Peter Frampton <laughs> or Ted Nugent or whatever. I said, he, he does both. So Interscope was definitely thinking, I think at one point they needed to find a singer. And I remember saying, uh, I think to Jimmy, I said something like, well, I don't know any 22 year old singers that look as good as he does. <laughs> that can sing as well as he does. So anyway, Tom Wally, I think eventually, you know, uh, I think they, they all, I think Tom probably wanted, wanted him to be a singer. I'm pretty sure. But anyway, it got to the point where they just weren't seeing eye to eye. Richie got off onto a heavy R&B soul vibe. Yeah. And I think they, they kind of signed them thinking they had a rock guy. Yeah. And which Richie is a rock guy. But at the time, he was really, you know, his influences were getting deeper and deeper into the soul. And he always liked Prince and stuff like that. And he's quite a dancer, too, I understand. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, that, that, didn't, that didn't work out. Uh, but uh, luckily, uh, everything else did. But I, I got to say, he's one of the smartest uh, artists from a business perspective that I've ever run across. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's, you know, uh, you, you, you helped him guide him into the winery dogs. Uh, but anytime anybody has, has helped him get into something, he always makes it, makes the very best of it. Yeah. And uh, to think that he was a Mr. Big and that he also, um, you know, played with Lenny Clark and Stanley, Stanley sorry, Lenny White, Lenny White and Stanley Clark uh, in that band Virtue with Rachel Z. I mean, you're talking about the legends of jazz fusion. Fusion and Richie was they considered him to be you know good enough to be a, play with them in that arena. That's that's the apex of that. Oh know? yeah, and he made a blues he made a blues record for me. And if Richie made a blues record right now, I mean, it, it would be insane because you know, it, it, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think he would make an amazing. Uh, he already made one amazing blues record. I think he can make another one. But yeah, well, no, I, I'm with you. I appreciate what you've done for him, and I just love watching his career develop. Yeah, it's amazing. There's there's nothing the guy can't do. He's it's, to me, it's like genius level stuff. He can play, write, sing, anything. It's just it's it's absolutely crazy. Hey, in the time that I have left, I want to jump around to a few different things here while I still have you, because again, there's so much in your resume. There's so much I want to ask you about. So if you can give me a few things on these guys, I'm kind of curious about. So so first of all. I was looking down your your run of records and a name jumped out at me that I believe it or not only recently discovered because he does um and and for years he's been doing a Hendrix show but you did a record with Randy Hansen? Yeah. I mean R- R- was was Randy doing the Hendrix thing back then too? Yeah, here's the deal. Uh I met Randy when he was working on the Apocalypse Now soundtrack. There's that, there's that, there's a part of the show where there's these Vietnam, like, uh, well, there's all this, how can I put it? 
all, all these crazy sounds from a guitar, like Stratocaster craziness. And that, that that's Randy. He was checking out the first guitar synthesizer that ever ever commercially released, the Roland. And this, I would say, has got to be in maybe about 1980 or so. And so um, I met him a little bit there. When Pilsen came down and brought Mark Robertson, who's a great keyboard player, uh, brought him down to do that, to, to, to work with. Uh, they had been playing with Randy at one point or another, I think, in Seattle. So Randy would come to our, our band was called Cinema, and he came to a gig or two, and he'd come up at the end, and we'd, we'd jam out for like, you know, three, four songs or whatever. And eventually in 1981, when I got married and I had shrapnel fully, you know, in gear, um, uh, Bilson and the guys, we had a band meeting and they said, you know, you got your label going. We got, we need to be musicians. <laughs> we, we have to take whatever gig we can because that, that's how we make our money. And, you know, there are things you don't want to do at this point that we need to do. And Randy is, you know, we have an opportunity with Randy to, to go and do a bunch of stuff. And I said, yeah, I mean, of course I get it. So I'm like, I guess I got fired, but but by really good friends, and, and and in a way that, of course I had, you know, you know, of course I understood. Uh, but no, that that first Randy Hansen album is, guy named Mark Nelson, who's a great drummer, and but Jeff Pilson on bass. Oh wow, I did and not that, know that at that, all. So and I want to, yeah, I, I want to, yeah, I don't mean to cut you off on these things. I, but I mean, the, the, the Hansen record, the, the Hansen record, I did. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Right, there's so many th that I want to hit you with and get something on. Here's the other thing I didn't know. So, so two guys that I know very, very well and have gone on to have great success recently that, that I guess you did early records with that I was completely unaware of. First would be John Five. You did a bunch of early John Five records? Yeah, the first two uh, solo albums are shrapnel albums. I was and, totally uh, unaware of that. And, and the other being Ron Thal, a.k.a. Bumblefoot. Now... Everybody, oh, yeah. everybody knows that John, of course, just joined Motley Crue, played with Zombie Manson, and yeah, and yeah. John, you know, I put John on my TV show a bunch of times, and he blew people away every time because the irony about John was yeah. he was yeah. he's in he was in bands like Manson and Zombie that don't feature lead guitar yeah. playing, and people would see him playing in the breaks on my TV show, and they would just be like, "What the hell's going on there?" So, um, yeah. jo you got you got a very young. John Lowry, a.k.a. John Five, I guess, huh? No, it, it, I mean, yeah, young relative to uh, a lot of people. But no, he was, he'd already done the David Lee Roth band. Oh, okay. Uh, I think he was playing in Manson, uh, just winding up uh, Manson when, when we first started talking. And then during our, while we were working together, uh, he hooked up with Rob Zombie. So th this is probably maybe... 15 years ago oh, or so, okay. maybe at, not, not super early yeah, on 17 years ago, maybe. Yeah. It wasn't, wasn't forever. Wasn't forever ago. Um, but, um, Ron fall, uh, yeah, we, we started working together and he did an amazing record called the Avengers adventures of Bumblefoot. And it, it's just so musically advanced. Uh, I mean, honestly, I think that guy is the, maybe the most, gifted musician in many ways that I've ever met from a standpoint of being so deeply knowledgeable about music theory and having these crazy ears. So basically here's what he did. Here's what he did to me once he said, okay, take your guitar and take the E string and tune it to any, anything you want. So I tune it, you know, down or whatever. Now tune up the whole guitar as if your first string is, you know, is an A440, you know, but it can be whatever pitch. Now let me hear the first string. Okay. 
now play any chord on the guitar that you that you can uh, that you can that you can think of. You know, so I thought, well, I'm just going to put my fingers anywhere. You know, and, and <laughs> chords I don't know, and he would say, oh. Well, your first finger is on the such and such uh, string. It's a blah blah note. This one's on this string. It's a, this note. It's on that string. It's this note. You're playing a, a such and such chord. So then I go, okay, I'm gonna add my little finger on is a, is, a, is a high note, and don't play play one of the other notes, and just you know, and go up a little bit higher than I can reach by two or three frets. And he said that chord's not possible. So uh, basically, I'm sure there are other guys out there. And I, I'm really speaking to this talent. He I don't know anybody else would, it's like total fretboard recall. And no matter what the guitar is tuned to. So there's some guys that say, yeah, I've got perfect pitch. But then when you start detuning stuff and whatnot, you know, and notes get in between notes, well, that's not really a, that's not really an A. It's not really a bit somewhere between A, a and, B, and B flat, you know, wherever it is. You can tune it to anything. And, and uh, he can tell you exactly where every finger is on the, on the fretboard and what and what what chord it is and of course and, he plays and, the uh, irony of that is he plays a guitar with no frets on it. <laughs> it, it well exactly but the notes are still there but but and, and it's not even the irony because he can hear all those microtones so there's or whatever you want to call it there, there's nobody that uh would be more suited to playing a fretless instrument than than ron because because ron can hear all this stuff between the frets so he's not going to land on a sour note because his pitch is perfect. So, you know, it's really hard to, to, to negotiate like a fretless instrument, you know, without perfect pitch. Mm. Uh, but, but no, he's not only is he a really nice guy, he's just, yeah, he's just very, very, very talented. And, uh, he's certainly, uh, I don't know. I, I, that's all I can say. He's great, but you know, all these guys are great and for different reasons. Yeah. And, uh, I just love the fact though, that, out of all the guys I could have picked, most of the guys I did pick did keep it up and do have careers today, and they're still out there doing stuff. And, yeah. Uh, that, 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 so that makes me feel good, I guess. Oh, as, as it should. That's kind of like what I'm talking about, is that you were in on the ground floor with so many of these guys who have gone on to have great careers with other people, and it's it's got to feel good to, to be at that level. I got to ask you a little bit about a band that we both love. And you mentioned Michael Schenker a few times and we, yeah. you know, I, I love UFO. It's one of my all time favorite bands and I love Michael. I love the, the stuff they did without Michael as well. You, you, um, you put out UFO records, you put out records with Michael back in the band. You did Michael solo records. You did records under the name with Phil and Pete Mogway. Uh, talk yeah. about some of that stuff. Talk about your, your, your work with those guys, because it seems like you've been able to work with them in a few different capacities. Michael Solo, uh, Phil and Pete without uh, Michael, uh, you know, v bringing them together to do records like Sharks and Covenant. So that had to be a huge thrill for you being such a big Michael fan. Yes, uh, it certainly was. And uh, but I will say when I was playing at the Whiskey uh, opening for the Dictators with the Nuns, Ronnie Bingenheimer brought Phil Mogg up to the nun's dressing room uh, to say hello. And this is 1977. And nobody else in the band cared, could care about Phil Mogg, you know, because they're punks, you know. I'm kidding, but you know what I'm saying? They're, they're, they weren't heavy metal people. Right. You know, they didn't know who, who he was. They should care, and they would have maybe if they knew. But anyway, so I just saw Phil, and I just flipped out. So I started talking to him, and uh, 
I, I said, hey, what's going on? What, what are you doing these days? I heard Michael's gone. He goes, well, he's kind of missing right now, uh, but we got Paul Chapman just filling in. And uh, I said, well, I've got a guy that can, can, can play all that stuff you know, perfectly, and he's got a really great feel, vibrato, everything. And I don't know anybody that can do it but this one guy. And he said, well, bring him, bring him to the San Francisco show. So we went backstage to the San Francisco show. This is in 77, and I'm just bringing him into the dressing room, and there's Shanker walks in. And I'm like, holy cow. Uh, so this is like three days after I saw Phil in L.A. or something, right? So, or two days after or whatever. So anyway, Shanker had come back for that gig, and I saw Paul Chapman and Michael play together. Wow. Which was uh, really, I mean, I can barely remember it. But, yeah, they played together. And so, Who was the guy, Phil, Mike, was, who was the guy you wanted to bring to him? His name was Pat Giovanni, and he uh, worked really hard. He, he had all these demos produced by all these great people and had great people in his band. And uh, he moved to L.A., but like a lot of people, like, you know, even Frank, like, say, Frank Marino, where there's a lot of guys that have other skills and other talents beyond music. And sometimes, you know, if, if music's not giving you what you want, you know, you, you, there's other places that, that pay better. <laughs> so he he, uh, he had a great career, and now he's built a recording studio, and he's going to start uh, recording again. But uh, he, he, he never... He did really some great things locally, and everybody knew he was the, the man. But uh, it, it never he, he went where his you know where his, his talent that could make money w w w you know took him. And I, I you know I respect that because he he was married and, and whatnot. But anyway, so then Phil contacts me again in '82, and uh, he's looking for a guitar player. So this is five years later, there, before Misdemeanor. So uh, Pete Marino from the singer of Le Mans, he had a rehearsal studio. So we got all these guys to come to the rehearsal studio and audition for Phil. And we took, we took Phil to Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> he, <laughs> he still remembers that. He goes, well, what are we doing here? But, you know, I mean, well, I was, I was a young person, you know. Sure. So uh, anyway, so, so we, we, uh, we got these guys to play for him. And he goes, I really like Atomic Tommy. You know, whatever. He, he liked Atomic Tommy. So they took Atomic Tommy for UFO and he was the guitarist on Mr. Wiener. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tommy Wiener. McClendon. And, yeah. And so, so then eventually, you know, we, we got back in touch again and, and I think there was a falling out between Michael and UFO, which there are several legendary ones. And this might've been one of them. It was after walk on water. And so, um, so Phil and we started working, uh, on those, on those Mogway records and we had some, some great stuff there. And, uh, Anyway, I, then I started working with Shanker uh, with uh, MSG, and uh, at some point it was one of those things where, well, you guys aren't talking to each other, but I'm talking to both of you, and you know, we we all it just seemed like a natural thing to, to try UFO again. Uh, only thing I do regret uh, on those is that um, that you know it, it wasn't like we we in fact most of the Shrapnel records it wasn't like somebody except for maybe like Wasp or Icon or. Uh, bands that were bands, a lot of things that are pro that were more like projects or studio things. We would go into the studio and record music, and then worry about what's going to happen vocally later. So I would have to know how to how to arrange the music in my head so that you know we wouldn't end up with the road to nowhere somewhere where you couldn't put a good vocal over it. <laughs> you know, so right. basically, it, it helps to have have a background in that. And so, uh, yeah, so the UFO records came out really good, but you know, it wasn't like we had you know fifteen songs to pick from from each one, and we could hear the vocals and everything first. Phil had to write them kind of on the fly when he was out at the studio, and he did a great job. But I think things can you know 
can be better sometimes if you've got a little more time to prepare. But, you know, that, that that's being a small label and, and, you know, artists that are in demand different places. And, you know, sometimes we don't have that much time, most of the time, to actually put into doing something like that. So anyway, yeah, I got to make those records and work with Michael, and it was fun. At one time, Michael came in and handed me, he'd always come in with demos, and then we reworked stuff. And I'd say, hey, you know, I think you're a chorus, I think, you know, think your bridge is a better chorus and we'd move things around and he was always very cool about that stuff but one day he just came in and just gave me riffs like one riff another riff another riff and they they didn't tie together i said what is this he goes well you always take my my songs and, and rearrange them <laughs> he said, so i just figure i just give you parts <laughs> you can you can do with them what you want so i did and it came out really good but um Anyway, yeah, it was a lot of fun working with him and with Phil. I still, you know, am in touch with Phil uh, and, of course, Vinny and and, uh, and whatnot. It was sad that Pete died. That was a that was a very sad thing. But yeah, yeah UFO was probably my favorite. My favorite band as a kid, maybe. So to actually grow up and be able to do all that stuff with Shanker, because there's a bunch of albums uh, all totaled uh, between all that stuff. There's there's over between the Shanker and Mogway and UFO. There's well over ten records. Uh, so I, I, that, that, that's like living your dream. You know? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So, Mike, a couple other quick things on uh, on players you worked with and records you put out, and then I want to get a few minutes from you on what you're doing now. But there's uh, there's one guy I wanted to mention because it was really big deal when you made this record because no one had heard from him at the time. He lives there in Vegas. He's a bit reclusive. I'm always asked about him, and that's Jakey e. Lee. And you did a record with him called Retraced. I believe that's the only time you worked with Jake. Uh, tell me about finding, even then, finding Jake and getting him out to do stuff because he is quite a reclusive guy. He's hard to hard to wrangle. Well, uh, I think he was deliberately reclusive, and uh, when I when I was looking for him, and I had a friend who's quite a prominent uh, entertainment manager, and. Uh, he had uh, gotten a, a recent address for Jake and he knew that my intentions would be good, you know, in, in trying to find him. And so, uh, he let me know where he was. So a friend of mine, Ryan and I were driving in Vegas trying to find his place. And we came around the corner and, and there he was. <laughs> you know? and, and we, and it was like, we hit like a dead end or something, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't, I go, and I'm ducking in the car. I'm like, God, I don't want him to see me do this. You know, this is, this is so embarrassing, you know? So anyway, I sent him a letter to that address and he responded because I, I, I knew Jake, I think maybe right before he joined Ozzy or maybe right, right, uh, right at that time. I know there's a story between us and it's, he, he called me up when he was uh, bored out of his mind, I think in England. And, uh, we talked like for three hours one night and, uh, and the bill came out to be some insane amount, amount of money because back then, you know, you didn't sure. have the kind of stuff you did did now. So, yeah, so uh, we found Jake. I uh, I thought, you know what, why don't we make a cool record? Because Jake and I loved all the same kind of bands, and we always had that in common, you know. And so we decided to do this record, and he wanted to call it Retraced. And uh, so uh, we got Chris Logan, who'd been in the Michael Schenker uh, group for a number of records uh, on vocals. Great great singer and uh and we got um ainsley and we got uh tim bogart hell of and, a band uh, 
Yeah, and, and, yeah, and we we cut this record, and uh, you know, it, it's I, I love the record. I mean, it, you know, obviously Jake's a very serious musician, and you know, likes to spend time uh, like all serious musicians do. You know, making sure that things are, are right and, and feeling right and whatnot. And, and I, I know for that record, it was kind of rushed for him, and and I have to really thank him for being, uh, you know willing and able uh, to, to work within, you know, the budget we had for studio time and whatnot. And Michael Lardy uh, from Great White uh, produced it. And uh, maybe maybe Lardy and Jay, Jake, I can't remember exactly, but I know Michael engineered it uh, for sure. Um, the other thing is, I think we've done 550 records all total. I think that's the number, something like that, between all the labels. And I feel bad. There's so many people that, that I love to talk about time, but you know, we don't have any time for that now. Yeah, no, um, I know. I, but, I'm, I'm but, looking but down. I feel, like I'm short, I, yeah, I feel like I'm shorting, shorting out people. And I apologize. No, but, yeah, so anyway, there's only Jake's so much great time. Guy. He's a great guy. Lives in Vegas. Um, you know, uh, always looking forward to, uh, you know, something, something more great from him. He's one of my favorite guitar players. A super, super nice guy. Just, uh, you know, he's got a nice wife, and I think he just kind of likes to likes to lay back, you know, and, and I can't blame him. But so, uh, hopefully we'll hear, hear something from him uh, down the road because, uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there like me and you that, that want to hear it. Yeah. So, listen, in, in just the few minutes I have left here, and, again, I, I fully acknowledge that you've got other labels and we're just scratching the surface on the artists, so maybe we'll do another round at some point. But um, let's talk about now because you are still active making and producing records. I mentioned uh, a, a good friend of mine and yours, and I think an amazing player that I got turned on to through Danny Coker. Of course, you put out a couple records with Danny's band, Count 77, but Stoney Curtis, his guitarist, and the and the trio that he has, just mind-blowing. Danny had me sit there and watch him one night. I'd never heard of Stoney, and I was floored, and I love what he does. Um, so you do, I know you're working on stuff with Stoney. What's, what are you working on now? Like what should people keep an eye open for as far as great talent, great guitar players that you're bringing to them currently? All right. Well, uh, Stoney and I are working on a new record, uh, Stoney Curtis band album. And, uh, we've got some tracks cut already, uh, that are sounding really good. We're both very optimistic about it. We may cut something, uh, this week. Um, Stoney and I have been writing songs together for a long time and it's interesting, but we all, we both write a whole bunch of ideas and then the, the, the parts just kind of fit together really well. So the count 77 records, uh, he and I put the music together that way. And Danny, uh, and Danny, you know, came in and, and did singing and whatnot. And, uh, you know, we Curtis's his records. We kind of do a lot of the same stuff. we, we just kind of combine forces and, and, and come up with parts and, and write songs. So Curtis has been a really good songwriting partner. And like you said, he's a great guitar player. The first time I saw him, I thought, I'm going to work with this guy. And, uh, you know, it's, it's some, uh, one of the greatest blues singers I've ever known, uh, saw Stoney and he said, man, this is raw and real. Yeah. And so that's what the name of the second album. It's like Curtis is just a, a blues brawler. You know, he, he 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 just gives it gives it a hundred percent, and he's just got such a great great energy and feel that comes off of him. So yeah, and we have another Count seventy seven record that we uh, plan to be doing, uh, and uh, Danny's got some lyrics he's uh, supposed to be giving me. So I'm looking forward to that. And then Jason Walker, 
Have you seen Jason Walker before? Not familiar, no. He's a guy that Stoney and I are both, you know, wild about. And so uh, I'm making a record with Jason, and it's it's mixed. And uh, we have Nick Oliveri, the bass player, originally, you know, Queens of the Stone Age, and Caius. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's playing bass on half of it. This drummer's name's Mucho, who plays in a bunch of bands within that stoner rock scene, like the Great Electric Quest and Gygax. These are really into that scene, by the way. We didn't talk about it, but I love... Uh, a lot of those old heavy proto metal type of riffs and whatnot. There's a lot of good bands that are new in that vein that, that I think are great. But anyway, Jason Walker is a, an amazing singer and guitar player. So like, uh, he'll go do Ian Gillen child in time and just, you know, wail out those, those high parts. And then, you know, he can, I don't know. He just, he's writes really cool stuff. He's very sophisticated. His chord chord, uh, structures that he comes up with or anything, but you know, uh, well traveled. He does a lot. He has a lot of originality in what he's doing, and he can sing. And his guitar playing is—I mean, a couple of people have said they reminded him of Michael Schenker, but it wasn't that he studied Michael Schenker. It's just that he's got a great ear and a great feel and vibrato, and so he tends to go to notes that not everybody else goes to, or bend notes that unexpectedly end up where they're supposed to be because he knows where they're going. But yeah, so so we, we've been—that's been done at Stoney's and Danny's studio too, like they count Desert Moon mm-hmm. and. Uh, I got some other stuff I'm doing too. I'm basically just working with, with friends on things. I mostly retired from the record business, so to speak. Uh, and, uh, I'm, do you, do you, Mike, do you own the shrapnel catalog? Uh, all these old records that we're talking about cacophony and Steeler and all that stuff. Is that still under your control or did you sell it? Um, the majority of it was acquired by Sony through their, uh, company, the orchard. Okay. Uh, and so um, it got to the point with all the the complication of all the streaming and all that stuff like that. I just thought, man, this is one old dog that doesn't want to know any new tricks. <laughs> I just, I just, out of you know, I, this has been forty one years or whatever. So just in, you know, since I got to Vegas, I thought, you know, I think I'm just going to lay back and produce records, write songs with friends. And uh, one thing I'm really happy about, real quick, is that Eric Gales, who I've made a bunch of records with over the years and wrote a pile of songs with. Uh, he's on Mascot, which is the label that I used to distribute a lot of my records with uh, over in Europe. He had a Billboard uh, number one uh, blues record this year, and he's got a Grammy nomination. Yeah, well, I know I know Joe Bonamassa very well, and I know Joe yeah. really took him under his wing lately, and Joe was yeah. very proud of bringing Eric back yeah. and really worked him. And it, I don't have yeah. time for this story, but I actually worked for a yeah. management company that uh, managed Eric very, very early on and did that record with him on Electra. And then we know, you know, Eric ran into some problems with drugs and stuff and had a hard time there, but he was a kid when we worked with him. And then he's, uh, he's definitely had a Renaissance that I know Bonamassa was very proud about. Yeah. He's one of my all time favorites and and I've been working with him for years and and I'm just so happy to see what he's doing. It's it's a great feeling. Yeah. It's doing so good. Totally, totally great to see. Um, do, do you think that label, The Orchard, and where your catalog is, have they been good custodians? Is it out there? Is it available? Are they reissuing things, or is it you know, just kind of sitting? No, they're, they're not. It's not sitting. Uh, the, the shrapnel stuff has been reissued by, not all of it, but some of it has been reissued by different labels. And uh, I know Chastain stuff, and I think I think a label did a Greg Howe record, some Apocrypha. Um, None of this has anything to do with me at this time. I, I that deal was made uh, almost eight years ago. Okay. But, um, 
Yeah, so they're in charge of almost everything. I still have the shrapnel company and and uh, Tone Center and and uh, Blues Bureau, but um, the actual most of the catalog items, the intellectual property of the recordings, uh, most of that is now held by the Orchard through Sony or Sony through Orchard, whatever. Got it. Well, yeah. listen, man, I, I unfortunately have to wrap this up, but I yeah. can't, I'm so glad that we finally had the opportunity to do this. We talked about it forever and I appreciate you making the time. Cause I know you got a lot going on as well. And we'll definitely have to see you at the bootlegger soon at Vinton Vegas and, and uh, have a dish with <laughs> our buddy, Ronnie and hang out a little bit and continue this conversation way, I, privately. I, I don't, I, I don't sleep till five every day, by the way. I, that was just facetious when I mentioned that. Oh, oh, is that right? (laughs) Sometimes, maybe. Anyway, take care. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you. Hey, Mike, this was great. Thank you. Thank you again for the time. And uh, we will definitely do it again, whether it's on the air or off the air. I know that for sure. Yeah, yeah, off the air, fine, too. I'd love to talk to you more about what you know. (laughs) Well, it's always always fun to talk rock music. And uh, and again, and on behalf of all the the music fans and the rock fans and the guitar fans out there, thank you for all the great uh, artists that you've played a role in bringing us. Well, thank you so much. Mike Varney, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you soon. Take care. Right on. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Mike Varney. That was totally awesome. All those great stories about Varney and his incredible history in music and with Shrapnel Records. And I greatly appreciate Mike taking the time to do that. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be sure to check it out every Thursday with new episodes. Be sure to follow on social media at Eddie Trunk. Thanks to Joel Pollack for producing. And I'll see you guys hopefully on Faction Talk 103 for Trunk Nation every day, 3 to 5 Eastern. And, of course, on the SiriusXM app or, of course, back here for the podcast next Thursday. Have a good week, everybody.